last week was a heavy message. <laughs> Chapter 22, it was one of the pinnacle chapters in all the Bible. So in chapter 23, here's what happens. Sarah, the matriarch of the family, she dies. She's 127 years old. So roughly around three years elapsed between chapter 23 and chapter 24. So our focus in the series is on Isaac. So Isaac comes up again in this chapter, and I want you to look with me in verse 1. We're not going to cover the whole chapter today. We're just going to talk about the first nine verses this morning. Then next time, we'll go through the chapter. But verse 1, and Abraham was old and well stricken in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. Would you circle that in your Bible? The Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said unto his eldest servant of his house that ruled over all that he had. Now, we're going to talk about, before we end today, what was involved in this request right here. Abraham said to his eldest servant of his house that ruled over all that he had, Put, I pray thee, thy hand under my thigh. And I will make thee swear by the Lord and the God of heaven and the God of the earth that thou shalt not take a wife unto my son of the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. But thou shalt go to my country, to my kindred, and take a wife unto my son Isaac. And the servant said unto him, Peradventure, or what if... The woman will not be willing to follow me unto this land. Must I needs bring thy son again unto the land from which thou camest? In other words, sir, what if, what if the lady that the Lord brings to our path, what if she's not willing uh, to make this journey <laughs> without seeing the fella or meeting the fella or knowing the fella or the fella's family that she's committing her life to? What if she's not willing? Should I come back, get Isaac, and take him with me? Verse 6, and Abraham said unto him, Beware that thou bring not my son thither again. The Lord God of heaven, which took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and which spake unto me, and that swear unto me, saying, Unto thy seed will I give this land. He shall send his angel before thee, and thou shalt take a wife unto my son from thence. In other words, Abraham says, Look, I'm confident that the God who called me from Mesopotamia the God who led me out, the God who brought me right here to this spot, the God who gave me this promise, the God who established this covenant, the God who was a covenant-keeping, promise-making, promise-keeping God, I know, I know he will go before us. By the way, aren't you glad the Lord always goes before us? He's going to go before us, and I have no doubt that he's going to provide this young lady so that my son won't even have to go with you. That was Abraham's response, verse 8. And if the woman will not be willing to father thee, then thou shalt be clear from this my oath. Only bring not my son thither again. 
And that was the promise that he wanted the servant to make, that he would not come back and get Isaac and take him back to the Ur of the Chaldees. In verse 9, so Abraham, starting in verse 2, issued, issued this, this oath this binding agreement, and he said, I want you, servant, I want you to make this promise to me. I want you to make this a pledge. I want to make sure that we're clear and that you understand what I'm asking of you. Don't take Isaac back yonder. You go find a wife and bring her over here. Do you promise me that? In verse 9, and the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swear to him, or promised to him concerning that matter. You say, preacher, <laughs> what, what did we just read here? Well, what we just read is what I call a prelude to a search for a bride for Isaac. So Abraham now is 140 so he's 140, and you got to know, gang, that on his mind, his wife had passed away. She was younger than him, 10 years his junior. And so you got to know that he's thinking, well, man, if she passed away, and I'm 137 or 140, I'm getting close. <laughs> and on his heart and mind, he is not, I, I, he's very concerned about Isaac, his single son, not having a wife. You say, well, preacher, why was that a big deal? What was the problem with that? Well, here is the problem, gang. Obviously, a wife was necessary for Isaac to carry on the messianic line. Now, you can't forget this, that there is a reason why these patriarchs are listed like they are in the book of Genesis, to establish the whole redemptive story. That's why God has it in the book. And that's why even some of these details that we are, you know, that seem a little obscure to us in 2023, that's why the Lord has it in his word. So that we'll understand not only how important that covenant was, but the fact that God kept every single word that he ever issued and how vital it was. And that's why Isaac needed a wife. Just like last week, we talked about that it was necessary that Abraham knew that Isaac, that God somehow, even if he did have to sacrifice the life of Isaac, that God had enough power and enough integrity to raise Isaac back to life if that necessitated it. Why? Because Abraham knew that God was a promise-keeping God. And God was going to do what he said. God was going to fulfill his promise that he made to Abraham, not just because it was made to Abraham, but because it involved the Messiah. That through this line, God would bless the world through Abraham's seed. That's why this is so important. That's why Isaac, the forgotten patriarch, is included in the book of Genesis. And that's why it was vital that at some point in this journey, Isaac had to get a bride. Now, we learned some lessons from these verses. So let me give you 
Just three of them real quick. I want you to lean in and listen to me. If you're still with me, say amen right here. Now, don't miss this first one now. This is, to my, in my mind, this is so precious to me. And it applies to all of us. We learn a lesson, first of all, on prosperity. Prosperity. If you're taking notes, write that word down, prosperity. Now, what do I mean by prosperity? I want you to go back to verse 1. Would you leave your Bible open? Go back to verse 1 and notice what it says. Abraham was old. He was well stricken in years. That means that the aging process had now began to take its toll on Abraham. It was obvious you could look at him and tell he was an elderly man, an aged man. But notice this. It's not just a footnote, but in my mind, it's a point of clarification that the Holy Spirit on purpose (laughs) added. Obviously on purpose. Every word of God is on purpose. But notice what the Lord, it says, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And I want you to notice with me God's blessings, God's hand on Abraham. The Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. The hand of God was the obvious and stated source of all of Abraham's blessings, even at this old age of 140. And the accompanying struggles of aging. By the way, not that anyone in here is 140. I don't know, but hey, if you are close to that, come meet me after service. But who among us in this room who considers themselves of some significant age, who can't identify with this with with this struggle of aging. But can I tell you something? What's interesting to me, even through Abraham's struggles in life. And now at this season, as he's coming down the home stretch, and as we say, he's in the fourth quarter of his life, and he has, he has, he's, he's coming down the back straightaway, right? And he can see the finish line. But even in the midst of these struggles with aging, can I say this? That the scripture says, but even then, I don't miss this, God had been good to Abraham. Isn't it human nature and a tendency that we all have that certainly in the negative seasons of life, certainly in the midst of struggle, and this is a good word for all of us this morning, it's good for us to look back and say, in the midst of it all, in the midst of the burdens, in the midst of the heartache, in the midst of my confusion, in the midst of my struggles, my doubts, my fears, my anxieties, my heartaches, God has been good in my life. Amen. It's interesting to me, even after losing Sarah, and you got to know that there was a deep commitment and love relationship between husband and wife. Some of you know what that's like to lose a spouse. And even in the midst of losing a spouse, he could raise his hand and say, the Lord has been good to me. In the midst of his struggles and the years of barrenness, 
even after decades of a life of following God through the ups and downs, at least 65 years of following God that we know of, that we can attest to when, when the Lord called him and he began to get serious about the Lord and followed the Lord for 65 years. God's hand of blessing was obvious on Abraham's life. And I want to say this to you today, dear one, that God's hand of goodness and blessing has been obvious and evident on every single one of us in this room. Through sunshine and through the shadow. Through sickness and in health. Through happiness and through heartache. Through successes and through the sorrows. Through victories and through defeats. Abraham had to lift his eyes to heaven and say, God's been good. It's interesting, the scripture says, in all things. There wasn't one area of Abraham's life left untouched. It says in all things. There wasn't one area left unaffected by the blessings and the goodness of God in Abraham. That reminds me, gang, of James chapter 1, verse 17 that says, listen, listen, you remember this. Every good, every good and perfect gift comes down from one place, from the Father above. In whom is no variableness, that means he doesn't change. In whom is no shadow of turning. God's not fickle like we are. God's emotions are not up and down like ours are. He's a good God. He's blessed us in so many ways. Even the preceding events of the entire chapter bear witness to the obvious hand of God throughout chapter 24 as we're going to continue to learn as we go on in our study. Jehovah God was the author of all of these blessings. What's the point here? Here's the truth, that the tangible expressions of God's goodness in your life and mine should never be taken for granted. Oh, dear one, pause right this very moment. Just stop and think intentionally about the goodness of God in your life. I want to ask you, has he been good to you this year? Has he been good to you in the last 10 years? Has he been good to you all of your life? Has he been good to you this morning? I say absolutely amen, he has. You say, how do you measure a good day? Hear my heart. Hear my heart. Any day that I'm not in hell is a good day. And can I tell you this? That if, if, if the bottom fell out of my life today, I do not deserve one second of the goodness of God in my life. The fact that I am his child. The fact that I'm not going to hell. The fact that I, Jesus, took the wrath of God on himself. And yet I let these little, can I say this? These little temporary burdens and struggles affect my spirit even though the greatest blessing that ever happened to me that God could ever do was when he saved my soul and made me his child. And beloved, that is constant. That blessing is sure. That blessing is secure in Christ Jesus. To the glory of God. And all of us in this room can say, God's been good. 
God's specific blessings should make us holy and humble, not proud and forgetful. Listen to Deuteronomy 6, 10 through 12. It shall be when the Lord thy God shall have brought thee into the land which he sware to thy fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to give thee great and goodly cities which thou buildest not, houses full of good things which you didn't fill, wells digged which thou diggest not, vineyards, olive trees which you planted not, when thou shalt have eaten and now you are full, then when you're full, then beware lest you forget God. It literally means there to be oblivious of the Lord. You see, the great and subtle danger with prosperity is forgetting God. So there's a lesson here in prosperity. But then there's a lesson, secondly, in parenting. I want you to listen very carefully. Notice Abraham's desire to find the right kind of wife for Isaac. Abraham's concern was twofold in nature. First of all, there was a spiritual issue. If his son married a Canaanite into a Canaanite family, he might be gradually and would probably be led away from the true God. There had to be, now listen carefully, there had to be with Isaac and there has to be with you and I and there has to be with our children a spiritual compatibility with whoever their mate is in life. Can I get a witness right there? How can two walk together except they be agreed, Amos 4.4? Be not unequally yoked together with an unbeliever, 2 Corinthians. Why? Why is that so important? Why is that biblical? Because there is no higher human relationship than the relationship between husband and wife. And we've said this a thousand times and you agree and you know this. That relationship trumps relationship between children and parents even. Buddy boy, you know that if there is any relationship where there has to be harmony and unity, it has to be in the husband-wife relationship. And there is no single thing more important to be unified on than who your master is, who your Lord is, who you allow to call the shots in your life. And if the two of you are going in opposite directions when it comes to your spiritual relationship, that is just, that is a recipe for spiritual and relational disaster. Can I get a witness right there? No wonder Abraham was concerned. No wonder in his mind he was waging this out, engaging where is the best place potentially where we can find a wife for my son. He couldn't issue any, you know. Uh, I started to try to mention some dating apps. I don't, I don't know necessarily what they are. I don't have a need for it, praise God. But anyway, I'm getting myself in trouble majorly right now, so I'm going to slide back over here. I, I veered off from my notes, which I get in trouble when I do that. But there were no dating apps back then. He couldn't even put a need wife ad in the newspaper. <laughs> Where's he going to get this woman from? We've got to get her from somewhere. There was a pro prophetic issue. You see, the Canaanites were gross idolaters and heinous sinners. They were under God's particular peculiar curse. Genesis 9.25 said, curse be the Canaanites. 
And Abraham didn't want the divine promise of the covenant being jeopardized by the fulfillment of that particular curse upon the Canaanites. So he's like, man, I got to find a wife for my son. So he orders his chief servant to go back to Mesopotamia. Verse 4, go back to my country, he said. You see, in Mesopotamia, among his family there, there was at least a basic understanding of Jehovah, a regard of true worship of God at that time. And it was the function and responsibility of the parents to provide a partner for the marriage of their children at this day and time. Perhaps Abraham's age prompted him to proceed this plan of action. Perhaps it dawned on him, it's time for Isaac to get a wife. Two times in these verses, he reiterates that under no circumstances was the servant to take Isaac to Mesopotamia. What's the point of all this? Well, here's the point for us. The major decisions in life can be greatly aided by the wise and careful input of godly, vigilant parents. So parents in the room... Let's wake up. Let's put our thinking caps on. Let's put our praying caps on. Let's let the Holy Spirit do some evaluating in our own habits as parents. And there has to be a fine line, I know that, and as our children age, the dynamic changes, and we're all learning and understanding that. At some point, they have to have a sense of their own autonomy. But here's what I'm saying. We cannot afford to push the auto-parent button on our children when they're under our authority. There's no such thing as parental cruise control. Remember that the word parent is an action verb. It's not just a noun. It implies something we do. We parent them. It's not just something we are. It's a responsibility we perform, not just a position we hold. I thought about things that have an auto setting. Cameras, even airplanes, coffee makers, machines, clocks, computers, appliances, HVAC units, ships, boats, vacuum cleaners, even automobiles. The children do not come with an auto setting. God did not design children to operate properly and successfully without the wise, deliberate, conscientious superintendence of the parent. There are some things that we as parents can do on our end to help our children and grandchildren. Let me give you two or three. First of all, prioritize what's really important in the life of your child. I think we pick up on that from Luke chapter 2, verse 52, where it talks about all the ways that Jesus grew physically, mentally, socially, spiritually. You see, there's spiritual development that's needed in our kids. There's character development, there's scholastic development, and there's social development. Let's prioritize that, parents. 
let's, let's remember that this thing of parenting is a marathon. It's not a hundred yard dash. It's not an instantaneous process. It's not an easy, problem-free process. It's not even an automatic process. Each stage of a child's development brings its own set of unique challenges. There's the baby stage, and some of y'all are in that right now. That's the ones that are struggling to stay awake in the service this morning because they aren't getting any sleep at home. There's the toddler stage. Mama, you are worn slam out in the toddler stage. It's all right to amen right there. There's the preschool stage, the three to five. There's the grade school years. There's the teen stage. There's the young adult stage. As they're learning how to be an adult and stand on their own two feet and their own decisions. And parents, isn't it hard sometimes to stand back and be like, all right, all right, baby bird. I'm going to let you fly a little bit on your own. Watch out for that mountain. (laughs) The rational part, you know this, the rational part of the human brain, it's called the prefrontal cortex, isn't fully developed until about the age of 25. You know what that part of the brain, why that's there? The main responsibility of the prefrontal cortex is decision making. And guess what the last area of your brain that develops is? That's why, gang, you don't even have to ask When your child does something brainless and you say, why in the world did they do that? Because their brain has not fully developed yet, Cletus. They are going to do dumb stuff. Because their brain ain't fully developed and yours wasn't either till about age 25. Sometimes a little earlier, sometimes a little bit later. Sure, they're going to mess up and make some mistakes. And that's why the Lord brought us into their lives. Kids battle impulsivity. They battle social anxiety. They battle identity issues, boundary testing, fluctuating emotions. And God's got you and I right there along this journey to help them. Sow the right seeds now for the right kind of harvest down the road, God willing. You see, there are some things kids need to hear from you and be taught by their parents early and often throughout their development. Things such as that they are fearfully and wonderfully made and uniquely designed by Jesus. Things like that they are not the center of the universe. God is. Things like it's always right to defend the weak and the helpless and to lift up the fallen. Things like that their personal choices always have consequences. Things like that they really don't know as much as their parents do. Things like this, that their identity is defined by who they are in Jesus. They are not defined by their athleticism. 
They're not defined by their height, their weight, their facial features, their GPA, their peer popularity, or anything else. They're defined by their relationship with the Lord. Things like, regardless of what they do or become, they will always be loved by God and their parents. Things like that their ultimate joy in life will come as they find and follow and fulfill God's plan for them. And parents and grandparents and mentors even in their life, we get to come alongside them and be a part of this glorious journey that God in his wisdom and the divine master plan and genius of God, he arranged it to be that way. How are you doing with that? You say, preacher, some days I'm hitting on all cylinders. <laughs> and some days I need to change my spark plugs. Some days are good at that, and some days I'm on the struggle bus. I know. So let's let the Lord help us. Let's learn some lessons. Then this last lesson we learn, and I'm just going to throw it to you, it's a lesson on promises. <laughs> promises. Verse 2, verse 9. Verse 2, Abraham says, all right, it could have been Eliezer, we don't know, but it was his most trusted servant. He said, I want you to come here, and I want you to do something. I want you to make me this promise. Now, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, old CP up here does not understand every John Brown thing about why they made this promise this way. So in that culture and in that custom, it was customary, apparently, when you made a promise of magnitude to go to the man or the one you're making the promise with and put your hand somewhere under their thigh. You're like, Shazam, <laughs> I know. Now, if I came up to you today, well, no, never mind. anyway, it, that, we don't do that today, right? But apparently that was the custom. So he says, I want you to promise me you're not going to carry my boy to Mesopotamia. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Now, make me the promise. Yes, sir. He came over. Verse 9, he put his hand under his thigh. And I don't know if he raised his other hand. I don't know if he crossed his heart and said, stick a needle in my eye. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what exactly. I do know it was some type of gesture. Right? A pledge, a promise. And then he says, uh, basically, uh, what he's saying here, uh, he, he, he says, I want you to promise me this in the name of God. It's interesting, a handshake is a symbol of good faith. When making an oath or a promise, clasped hands. 
People show that their word is a sacred bond. Open, weaponless hands stretched out toward one another, grasping each other in a mutual handshake. Here is, was a custom that was about making a promise, taking a pledge, and understanding that I'm promising you this with the Lord as my witness. And because of that, it's a promise to the Lord ultimately. So here's the point. When you make a promise to somebody, a promise made should be a promise kept. You need to keep your word. Jesus deals with this in Matthew chapter 5. He gets down there to verse 37, and the whole context was about making frivolous oaths, something that the Jews were taught by the Pharisees, that it was okay to do that. And Jesus says, "Uh uh-uh. Remember what he said? Let your nay be nay, let your no be no, and let your yes be yes. What's he mean by that? If you tell somebody you're going to do something, make sure you do it. Now there's part two to this sermon. It's the actual getting of the bride. But you're going to have to wait, same bat time, same bat channel at a later episode for that one. I want to ask you this morning, though, as we come down the home stretch. First of all, has not the Lord been good in your life? Why don't you let his goodness saturate your attitude today? Why don't you let his goodness permeate your spirit? Why don't you intentionally right now think of something tangible and specific that God has demonstrated even in the last 48 hours in your life expressions of his goodness? And then pray this prayer, God, help me to let the reality of your goodness affect my disposition and my spirit. Let your face show it. Let your demeanor show it. Let your attitude show it. 